name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We're supposed to believe a lot in Christianity, right? There's a lot that's left to our faith, and a lot that's left to our interpretation, which is good. But some of it's really difficult. Quite often it's about our faith in who God is, what he stands for, how he does things, so on and so forth. But another thing that's really difficult is, how does God love me unconditionally? And that's one thing we struggle with. You know, as Christians, we're supposed to be, we're asked to be careful with our lives, to assess what we're doing, how we're doing it, to hold ourselves accountable, all of those things. And that's great, but sometimes it takes us down an even more complex route that doesn't allow us to see the good things in ourselves because we become so inward-looking and so analytical about our lives that we start to analyze ourselves the way that we analyze everything else. And unfortunately, much of that <clears throat> is negative. We, we have a, a simple disposition to be able to see the negative things in people or in situations. You know the concept of being a half full or a half, per, a half, half empty person. We all turn into a half empty person sometimes and some of us often because we're looking at what it means to go through a certain situation or to be involved in a certain setting or to overcome a certain obstacle. So one of the biggest questions is if I'm constantly looking at myself and I'm constantly looking at the shortcomings I have, how does God brush over all these things? I mean, surely he knows me, he sees me, he created me, he knows everything about me. How does he look over all of these shortcomings and weaknesses that I have and look at them in a way after which he still loves me? Because the starting point of knowing that God loves me is going to be a wonderful step to me loving myself and then to me loving others even more. The first thing is, one of my favorite, one of my favorite uh, verses that you all know, uh, Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. That shows us something very important. That if we're going to be like God... If we want to be like him, if we're going to be God-like, Christ-like, if we're going to seek perfection as he wants us to be perfect, all of those things, our thoughts need to be his thoughts and our ways need to be his ways. There needs to be a transformation. There needs to be a change. I can't be critical and cynical and go through life living 
constantly, critically and cynically and expect to love myself and love others and love God. It's good to be appropriately critical. A criticism that looks at situations for what they are and then assesses them and assesses them for the reality. Because a good objective criticism to critique something is to look at something and take it apart and say, well, there may be some things that are bad, but this is good and this is good and this is very good. That is how to properly criticize something. But for us, criticism has now become a negative term. When we become critical, we look at others in their worst possible picture, in their worst possible situation and setting. And so it becomes difficult for us to be able to see the good. And likewise, I assure you, when that becomes our view and action towards others, it's when we look at ourselves. We don't say it out loud. You know, we can speak our criticism of others out loud. But we won't necessarily speak our criticism of ourselves out loud. That's something we deal with as a deeper level. And taken to the next step, it not only makes us condemn ourselves, but it puts us into a state of hopelessness. Because we just don't know how God or anyone else could see us any differently. But when my thoughts are his thoughts, when my mind is his mind, when my ways are his ways, I start seeing things for what they really are. And even when God looks at us critically and he critiques us, he doesn't say, you know what, you're bad, too bad, you're out. What did he say to humanity? He said, okay, you're bad, I created you good, but now you've become bad. But you still have hope because I will come and I will save you. I will come and I will give you an option. I don't know why I've been thinking and saying this over and over again over the past few weeks, but it just keeps occurring to me that whenever we look at people, whenever we have conversations with them, whenever we deal with them, the worst thing in the world is to back someone into a corner and make them feel like they have no hope in life. Or make them feel that they can never be better. They can never improve. They can never change their circumstances. Because that immediately disempowers them, gives them hopelessness, and makes them think there's nothing I can do. That there's no point in striving for anything, there's no point in working towards anything, there's no point in hoping for anything or to achieve anything because, you know what, I can't do it. And the same thing for ourselves. We don't want to ever back ourselves into a corner and that's why God was so gracious. He said that for generations you were backed into a corner. For generations there is nothing you could have done about the nature of this relationship, but that was never my intention. It was never my long-term intention because what is going to happen is that I'm going to come, I'm going to wipe away everything that was an obstacle to you in the past, 
I'm going to give you a clean sheet, then it's up to you. Oh, and by the way, I know for a fact that even that clean sheet, you're going to mess up occasionally or regularly. And even then, I'm going to leave you my church, my sacraments, my hope, so that even when you do that, you still have a way out of it. That's the mind of God. That's his way to always give us hope, to always give us a way in which we can interact with him, with ourselves, and try to get to a better place. First epistle to the Corinthians, uh, first epistle of St. John, chapter 3.20 says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Let's, let's break that down a little bit. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, which means that when my heart condemns me, it is not an act of greatness. When my heart condemns others, it is not an act of greatness. I've said to you time and time, the easiest thing in the world is to pick somebody apart. Really easy to do it. You meet someone, you, you can catalog their faults. And even if you can't see them, you'll make a few up, but you'll make them stick. Or even if you can't do that, you'll say it in such a way that it's hurtful. That's easy. You know, thankfully, it's not easy for absolutely everybody, but for many, many of us, it's easy. What's more difficult is that we then are able to look at others and say, no, hang on, I see beyond that. I see past that weakness. I look at you, I look at these few specks, but I see far beyond it because I see the beauty within. I was just speaking to someone today who said, um, you know, I have no misconceptions. I know I'm really difficult to deal with. But my answer was, no, it, that's not the way it is. Yes, we all go through difficult patches and difficult times. But the, to be able to look at a person like that and say, you know, I understand that's how you see yourself. But I can look deeper within and see the beauty that is there. That is so empowering. It's empowering the other person, but it's empowering to me. Because I then know that I have the mind and the heart and the eyes of God, and I'm using them. So it starts by saying, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, which means that condemnation is not great, and knows all things. Which means that if I'm condemning, then I don't know all things. Someone comes up to you and they swear, or they shout, or they scream, or they hurl abuse, or they become aggressive. The first thing they think is, ugh, oh, bad person. Now, let's make a distinction. It is most definitely a bad action, right? Unjustifiable. And there's a big difference between 
cause and justification. It's never good to justify wrong, but it is always good to look at what causes it. In our own lives and in the lives of others. And I was dealing with someone one day. I was visiting a church and someone came who was really aggressive, really inappropriate, just speaking. And I, I just sort of took it and fine. I thought, I felt something be, there's something behind that. So I didn't retaliate, didn't react, reacted with love and because it was in front of people sort of let it pass. And I spoke to the priest and I said, I sense there's something. What's wrong? What's wrong with this man? And his wife had recently been diagnosed with a very, very aggressive cancer. And he felt like there's nothing he could do about it. And she was going to die. And he felt angry and disempowered and bitter. Again, not a justification, but a cause. And an hour or so later, the man came and he apologized. And I said, listen, I understand. There's no need to apologize. I know I've heard what you're going through and praying for you. So that is really good for us to be able to do. Because that's how God looks at us. God looks at us and said, okay, you've strayed, you've gone away, you've taken your own path, it's all right, it's okay. I don't like it. It's not what you should have done. It's wrong. It's not justifiable, but I understand why you've done it. And so come back to me. Come back. Think of the prodigal son with his father. And his, he comes back and says, I'm not worthy. And he just stops him. And he embraces him and he receives him to himself again. Don't forget that all of these stories and accounts we read in Scripture are not supposed to be standalone. They are supposed to give us an insight into God's heart and God's mind, and therefore into how I am supposed to act as well. Book of Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall be as wool. I'm going to take these things away from you. Come and let's reason together. And that's what confession's about. Confession's about going to God and reasoning with Him. And because I can't fully reason with him when I'm alone because I, I miss the response sometimes unless I'm very, very attuned to it. It's easier to speak to someone. So when we go to confession and we're speaking to our confession fathers, we're reasoning with him, saying, this is what I did. This is why I did it. And God, through that process, says, that's fine. You are going to be as white as snow, and you shall be as wool, pure, beautiful, white, spotless, clean. No longer 
red and scarlet and crimson, what are the colors of? The colors of blood, the colors that are tainted. Take all that away. Because my blood washes all of that away. My blood gives you hope and gives you life. Book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 4. says, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck and stopped and fed them. God knows we're in this constant struggle. But he doesn't want us to be, he doesn't want us to be burdened. He doesn't want us to be unfed. He doesn't want us to be hungry. He doesn't want us to be in despair. He says, I drew them in with gentle cords. You see, we sometimes feel like God has a leash on us. Pulls it when we want to go one way or the other. But that's not what he wants. The gentle cords are the cords of love, the cords of conscience. They're the cords. They're the things that say, hang on, I shouldn't be going this way. I should be going a different way. I need to look at my life. I need to live it appropriately, live it lovingly, live it in a Christian manner, live it in this beautiful sense of purity, righteousness, blamelessness, all of these things. And when he tugs those gentle cords, that's when he says, you know, I'm not doing this to rein you in. I'm not doing it to bind you and to control you. I'm actually doing it so that I can take the burdens off you. Because the sin you carry is a burden. You're not bad because of yourself, because you know what? I created you. I didn't create you bad. I created you beautiful. And I know what you're capable of. But because you go down that other route, you keep carrying these burdens. And these burdens are then the ones that control you and shackle you. But I'm here to take those away. I'm going to do two things. The first is, I'm going to take your burdens away, your yoke away, so you're not carrying that weight anymore. And the second thing is, I'm going to allow you to feed on my love, because you've been hungry for so long. You've been deprived, and you think you're not worth anything else. I'm going to leave you to look at me and understand what I'm here for, to take away those burdens and then to feed you with my love, to feed you with promise, to feed you with hope. But it's important for us to understand God differently, that he's not here to condemn us, but he's here to empower us. He's not here to judge us, but he's here to save us. You know, so that's important. But to do that, we need to change the way we look at him. Because for so long, we have looked at God in a very different way. We've considered God being 
controlling, difficult. We've seen God as being a burden, placing restriction over restriction over restriction on us. And you see it sometimes in the relationship between children and their parents. As they're growing up, they look at their parents, and all they see is parents putting burdens on them. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And even for me as a confession father, I can see it sometimes. I can see people thinking, ah, here I am. I'm the bad guy again. I'm the thought police again. I'm the guy who always keeps throwing down rules and then make people feel bad. But as relationships mature, you start to realize this isn't about restriction or condemnation. This is about liberation. It's about challenging to a better end. When your parents tell you to eat your vegetables when you're three, and you don't really want to, it's not because they want to feed you this miserable, disgusting, green, slimy stuff. It's because that's what nourishment is. When they told us over and over and over and over that we have to keep studying because apparently in our culture, that's all that matters. It's not because they just want you to be miserable. It's because they want you to have a career, to do something, to make something of yourself. And of course, while that is sometimes questionable, the intention is what I'm looking at. So when the church, through its teachings, keeps saying to us, be good, be faithful, be righteous, be gracious, be forgiving, all of those things, it's not just to make you a weaker person. Sometimes people say, what, you want me to forgive others? What does that mean? I'm going to be a doormat? People keep walking over me? No. It's to make you live in a different way. Because you know what? The world will have you become this self-absorbed, selfish, self-interested, aggressive person so that you can get your way all the time because no one else should get their way. But imagine if we all did that. That's what a jungle is. Well, actually, it's worse than what a jungle is because in the jungle, animals live according to instinct and pattern. They generally don't attack each other just for the sake of attacking each other. It's either to eat or to protect boundaries. That's pretty much it. But as for us as humans, we do a lot more than that. Selfishness, accumulation, greed, all of these things. But we need to realize that when we are challenged to do those things, we are challenged so that we can rise above them and realize the beauty of who we are. If God is able to look at us for who we are and see us and say, you know, regardless of all these things, I still love you. I really love you, not just as the world does, but I love you to the extent that I will lay down my life for you. And not just I'm going to be in some, you know, luxurious lifestyle and I'm going to be the hero and I'm going to lay down my life very theatrically. No, I'm going to lay down my life in the worst, most horrible way possible. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be accused, I'm going to be convicted, I'm going to be 
persecuted, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be nailed, I'm going to be speared, I'm going to be crowned with thorns. Because those people had no mercy. But it doesn't matter, because I'm going to do that for you. I am laying down my life. And why do you think I'm doing that? Because I'm a good God? Well, yes, to a certain extent, because I'm a good God. But because I'm a good God, I see you for who you are. Because I'm a good God, I created you good. And I know you are worth fighting for and you are worth saving. And that's not a message we often get in the world these days. We need to always earn things. We earn people's love. We earn earn people's protection. We earn people's faithfulness. We earn people's sacrifice. Whereas for God, we're actually not supposed to do any of that at all. He doesn't put us through hoops. What he does is he just gives us more and more and more. And we need to understand why. Why does he give us more? Because he loves us and because he wants us to have as much as possible. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me and no one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. That's really important. He is never going to reject us. Ever. Because at the end of the day, all he wants is us. And he wants us in whatever state we are. So he'll always accept us. But it's up to us to be in a way that allows us to be with him forever. And again, that is for us, not for him. God doesn't need an ego trip. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. He just wants us to be with him because he loves and cares about us. And so it's really important for us to understand that. It's one thing to do something to better yourself. It's another thing to do something because you think you need to jump through a hoop. We become exceptionally resentful of having to jump through hoops. And sometimes if I feel like I need to do that, I will act up against it. I'll reject it. I will cut off my nose to spite my face because I will not have any part of this. You want me to do something? I'm not going to do it. Just because you told me I have to do it. And so even to our salvation, you know, the commandments we receive, don't, don't kill don't covet, don't commit adultery, don't steal. It's about us. It's about us living in a certain way. It's about us only having what we have and not coveting other things and getting them in the ways that are going to be destructive. So he doesn't come to condemn in that way. What he comes to do is say, you know what, I will give you everything. I am here to give you all things. Seek my kingdom 
and its righteousness, and then you'll get everything else. Because the minute you seek my kingdom and you seek that righteousness, you'll be transformed as a person and the things you ask for are the things you should have anyway. So I'm going to give them to you. But the things we ask for, <clears throat> when we're not seeking God's kingdom, we're seeking this earth, when we're not seeking righteousness, we're seeking evil, of course they're going to be destructive. So why would he give them to us? Why would he give me something that is going to be destructive for me, destroy my life? Why would he give me something that is going to change me as a person? That's not what God wants. God wants to give me something that is for me, to give me life. <clears throat> I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Not just any life, but abundant life. St. John Chrysostom says this to us. He says, be ashamed when you sin. Do not be ashamed when you repent. Because when you sin, you're expressing what you've done wrong. When you repent, you're leaving it behind. And that should be our attitude with God. Be ashamed when you stand before God as a sinner, but rejoice when you stand before him as one who has repented. Because it's in that repentance that we fulfill his love and his desire. Because his love is about giving us life his desire is about giving us life. This is why he came. This is why he left us his church and his sacraments. And this is why he waits for us until we are reunited once more. No longer having to feel shame, but living purity, love, victory, living justified with him and for him for eternity. And glory be to God forever. Amen.